Undoubtedly, some of the greatest buildings ever built are the medieval cathedrals of Europe. Everyone, of course, is uh, in amazement uh, anytime they get to see them, even pictures of them. One thing that's really remarkable to consider is that even if we wanted to build one of those cathedrals today with all our technology, we really couldn't do it. Uh, at least not with the same skill that they did. A lot of those skills, the way they used wood and stone and so forth, a lot of those skills have been lost in the modern world. Occasionally there is an attempt to build a cathedral-like building or a replica of one of the medieval cathedrals, but they're never exactly the same. And if you really look at the details, you see that compared to the craftsmanship and the skill and the wisdom reflected in those medieval cathedrals, the modern replicas, the modern attempts come up short. Psalm 139 is a cathedral-like psalm. It is magnificent, it is astonishing, it is full of goodness, truth, and beauty. Just like if you walk into one of those medieval cathedrals, you know immediately that something holy happens here. When you read this psalm, you can't help but encounter the holy God. You realize you're in the presence of a holy God when you read this psalm. David's lyrics are unmatched, and you might even say unmatchable. Ask yourself this. When you consider the beauty of the poetry, the beauty of these song lyrics here in Psalm 139, is there anyone out there today who is writing lyrics comparable to what David wrote in Psalm 139? Is there a rapper or a hip-hop artist out there writing lyrics comparable to this? Is there a country music singer? Maybe one I don't know about, because <laughs> the ones I know about certainly aren't uh, coming anywhere close to this. Is there anybody who can write something with the same skill, the same striking beauty as this psalm? Are there any contemporary Christian musicians who are writing anything comparable to this, writing original songs that could match Psalm 139? I don't think so. Certainly not that I am aware of. I don't think there are any songwriters today in any genre. Uh, I don't think there are any poets today who can hold a candle to David's literary craftsmanship here. Just like we can't reproduce those medieval cathedrals, we can't reproduce anything like this psalm. This is a magnificent song of, of prayer and praise to God. It is a celebration of God's attributes of who God is, this glorious celebration of who God is for us. But you know, one thing I really like about David's poetic theology here, and this is really what Psalm 139 is, it is theology cast in the form of poetry. One thing I love about it is that there is nothing abstract about it. So often theologians kind of get off into abstractions, don't ever really seem to connect with real life. That's not David. David teaches us wonderful theology here in this psalm, not in the style of a textbook, but in a deeply personal way. This is personalized theology. It's very particular. It's very particularized to David's own experience. The theology of the psalm is interwoven with David's own experience so that God's attributes, the truth about who God is, shapes the way David experiences life. So, for example, when David here talks about God's omniscience, it's not just that God knows everything, it's that God knows me. It's not just that God is everywhere, it's that God is with me. It's not just that God has created all things, it's that he created me. David connects this theology with his everyday life, and he shows us that the infinite God 
is infinitely intimate with us. The infinite God is still intimate with his people. God's infiniteness and his intimacy actually go together and reinforce one another in this psalm. So let's dig into it. We're going to look at the first three sections of this psalm today. Lord willing, and then come back and look at uh, the final fourth section, which is a little more complicated uh, next week. And I've broken it up this way so that we can really enjoy and savor each line of this psalm, because every line here is so full of meaning. Each one deserves our attention. It's really amazing here. Just to give you an idea of how this psalm is structured, there are certainly different ways to look at it, but here's one way. Verses 1 through 6 are about God's knowledge. God is omniscient. Verses 7 through 12 are about God's presence. God is omnipresent. Verses 13 to 18 are about God's power. Uh, God is omnipotent. And then verses 19 to 24 are about God's holiness. God is all holy. And what we're going to see is that David is astonished and overwhelmed by these truths. And if we can enter into this psalm fully, we will be astonished and overwhelmed by these truths as well. That this all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, all-holy God cares for him and loves him. That fills David with wonder and with worship and with joy and with confidence. And it can do the same thing for us if we will see what David is doing here. This psalm is full of childlike awe and wonder and trust in God. It's really interesting to me. This psalm has some of the most profound insights into who God is in all of Scripture, and yet it's cast with uh, an almost childlike wonder before God. So, so it's really interesting. You've got a psalm here that the smallest child in this room can benefit from, and yet it's also a psalm that even the greatest theologian could never master. It's really just remarkable in that way. Of course, the whole Bible's that way, but I think you especially see it here in Psalm 139. So verses 1 to 6 are really a description, or I think better you could say, a celebration of God's knowledge. And in particular, God's personal knowledge of David. David is reflecting on how God is omniscient, and it's not just that God knows everything, but he knows everything about me. And so David opens the psalm. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And this is interesting if you consider David's context, because in the ancient world, the pagan gods were not interested in searching and knowing humans. Uh, in the ancient world, the pagan gods were generally either indifferent to man or hostile to man. But that's not the God David is describing here. That's not the case with Yahweh. He knows David and he knows David inside and out. He has searched David out and he knows David indeed better than David knows himself. That's remarkable to think about. God knows you better than you know yourself. Yahweh has searched David out. He knows David perfectly. In fact, it's interesting, the word for knowing is used of Yahweh seven times in this psalm. Seven, of course, is the number of perfection or fullness, showing the fullness and perfection of God's knowledge. Next line continues with this theme. David says, you know my sitting down and my rising up. That's a standard way, kind of a proverbial way of, of describing the whole daily life of a person. This kind of language, sitting down and rising up, covers the whole daily life of a person. God knows all of David's movements and actions. Nothing is hidden from God. There are no secrets when it comes to God. God knows your every move. He says, you understand my thoughts afar off. 
Now we can see it's not just that God has information about David. No, God understands David. He knows how David thinks. He knows David's deepest desires and loves. He knows David's aims and intentions. That word for thoughts, that's really what it describes. Your purposes, your aims, your intentions. God knows these things about David. He knows David in his heart of hearts. Obviously, David knows God is a merciful God a compassionate God, a forgiving God, or none of this would be worth celebrating. None of this could be a comfort to David. He has to, implied in all this, is that David knows that God is compassionate and merciful. See, here's the thing. All of us want to be understood and loved. We want someone to know us deeply and to love us deeply. The problem is there's a lot of people who love us, but they don't know us that well. Uh, and there's a lot of people who do know us well, but they certainly don't love us because they know us well enough to know there's a lot of things about that person that, oh, I don't know. Here, David says the Lord has searched him out. And even though the Lord has searched David out, he loves him to the fullest anyway. Even though what, much of what that searching reveals is no doubt junk in David's life, David's point is that God loves him perfectly and knows him perfectly, that he knows him perfectly and loves him perfectly anyway. And that's what we all want. That's what we all crave, to be known and loved. And David is saying, God does that for us. David says, God has this knowledge of me, and there is no hint that David finds this threatening. In fact, at the very end of the psalm, he invites further ongoing searching on God's part. This knowledge that God has of him is not a threat because he knows God is good and gracious and merciful. It's not like God knows David and is repulsed by him. No, God knows David as deeply as possible and therefore he can love David perfectly. That's really the point. No one can know David and love David the way Yahweh does. Not a parent, not a spouse, not anyone. Yahweh has this special knowledge and special love for David, and he does for each of us too, and that's the point. Verse 3, David goes on, he says, You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Think about this. Compare God to Google. Okay? Google knows about you. Google has data about you. Google could say a lot about you, your location at different times of the day, your interests, your problems. Uh, your concerns, those stupid questions you've looked up <laughs> on the internet that you've done searches for. Google knows all kinds of things about you. Google has all kinds of data about you, but Google does not know you. There's a difference. Google has data about you, but by contrast, God knows you personally. And that is different in a huge Way. In verse 4, David says that the Lord knows his words before he even speaks them. Now, maybe there is a little more of a hint of, of, of threat here. I don't really think it's something that um, this should be taken just in this way. But obviously, uh, we need to be careful what we say if God is always listening, if God knows our words before we speak them. Do you really want God to hear you saying profane words or using coarse speech? Uh, do you want God to hear those things coming from your mouth? Do you want God to hear gossip or harsh words coming from your mouth? Do you want God to hear you yelling at your spouse or at your kids or at the TV during a sporting event? <laughs> okay. uh, no, obviously. Okay. But David here says, God knows my words before I even speak them. It's interesting. It's not just that God knows David's words in the sense of hearing them, overhearing them, but God foreknows David's 
words. He knows what David is going to do before David does it. He knows what David is going to do before David knows what he's going to do. God foreknows all of David's actions. We're going to come back to that in a bit uh, because David revisits this truth later in the psalm. He's even going to explain to us how God foreknows what will happen. But again, the point here is that God has this comprehensive, exhaustive knowledge of David. He knows everything about David there is to know. All his thoughts, words, actions. He knows David perfectly. And of course, by implication, he knows us perfectly as well. Verse 5, David says, you've hedged me in behind and before your hand is upon me. Uh, I remember growing up in church and hearing the pastor occasionally pray for a hedge of protection. And I always thought that was really weird. You know, how are bushes going to keep us protected if that's what a hedge is? That just sounded like a strange phrase to me. Uh, but here it is. David used that phrase first. And it has a clear meaning here. God's not talking about putting up a row of bushes or shrubs to keep people from getting at you. No, God himself puts the hedge up. Indeed, God himself is the hedge of protection around us. And what that means is this. This is what David is really saying. Nothing can get through that hedge to harm you unless God wills it, unless God allows it. Whatever comes through that hedge, whatever harms you, has got to get through God first. It's got to go through God first to get to you. Now, here I think is the point. God knows exactly what we need. God has a purpose for each of us to grow us into Christ-like maturity. That's God's purpose for us. And we can't get there unless we go through certain trials and hardships and struggles along the way. God knows exactly what we need. Just like a personal trainer might map out a perfect model of fitness to get you to where you want to be in terms of your health. These are the things you need to do. God knows exactly what we need in order to become the kind of mature human beings that he wants us to to be. So all of the trials that God allows through that hedge are perfectly suited. They're perfectly designed for us. Uh, They're perfectly suited to strengthen us and mature us in just the ways that God wants. We can be assured nothing gets through that hedge to harm us or to hurt us unless it's going to serve a good purpose in our lives. So God puts this hedge up around us. God has you surrounded. His hand is on you. He will take care of you. He will guide you. He will protect you. And then verse 6 concludes this section. David is awestruck by all of this. He is in awe that he knows the all-knowing God. This is just too wonderful for him that he knows this God who knows him in this way. He cannot fathom it. It surpasses his imagination that the infinite God who oversees the whole cosmos who knows the whole cosmos, that this God would dote on me and give me, little old me, this kind of attention, that this God who knows everything would shower me with this kind of attention that is unfathomable, unimaginable to David, and yet it is true. And see, it's true for each of us. God showers each of us with attention because he has affection for us. That's David's point here. David's humbled by this. David is awestruck by this. You know, we really need awe in our lives. Awe is one of those things that keeps us humble. You know, Teddy Roosevelt used to go outside at night when he was president, and and he'd have his secret service with him, and he'd be looking up at the stars for a little while. And, of course, this is before there's electric light everywhere. He'd look up at the stars for a while, and then he'd say, okay, I feel small enough now. We can go back in. 
He, just, he needed that experience of awe. We all need that experience of awe. Well, for David, this is the ultimate source of awe. Psalm 139 should fill you with awe, should fill you with greater awe than seeing the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or some other beautiful wonder within nature. Knowing this God and seeing who this God is should fill you with reverent awe. We should be awestruck before God. Now, one more thing here before we move on to the next section. A cynic might look at what David has to say here and might be horrified by this and terrified by this because it could look like God is a stalker of some sort. Isn't this kind of creepy that God watches every move we make and, and he's constantly following us around and, and, and observing us, surveilling us in this kind of way? You know, in general, we don't like to live under constant surveillance. Uh, we don't like the idea, even though we carry devices with us that do this, we don't like the idea that those devices are tracking us, that we've got cameras watching us almost everywhere we go. That's disturbing to us. We rightfully despise the idea of a surveillance state where Big Brother is always watching. Normally, we don't want to be watched constantly in that kind of way. We want some privacy. But the main reason that we don't want to be surveilled in this way is because we don't trust the intentions of those who are doing the surveilling. We don't trust the intentions of those who are doing the watching. The thought of the state or a big tech corporation seeking to be omniscient, uh, the idea of a state or big tech corporation that wants to know everything about us, that is rightly viewed as terrifying and even idolatrous. But now change the picture. Instead of a surveillance state, picture a mom and a dad with their newborn baby in the nursery, and now they're in another room, and they've got a baby monitor, and they're watching their child. They're surveilling their child. They're watching their child, but they're doing so with good intentions because they want to protect that child and help that child and care for that child. That's not creepy. That's loving to care for a child in that way. I've noticed actually, and maybe you've seen this too, a lot of times when little kids are out playing on a playground, they'll sometimes look over to where mom is or where dad is just to make sure they're being watched. <laughs> because they want to be watched. For little kids, it can give security to know they're being watched by those who love them. There's a source of security in that. It gives them a sense of being protected. And further, I, I talked about the devices that track us all the time, but we probably, probably most of us here, have people we willingly share our location with through our phones because we trust those people, we trust their intentions, we trust that they will use that knowledge of our whereabouts for good. Not for evil, but for good. And so we don't mind them having that knowledge of our coming and our going. Well, those analogies are not perfect. But I think they help us get at the point here. David enjoys the fact that God knows him in this way. He is glad that God knows everything about him. He is glad that God constantly watches over and observes him. Why is he glad about this? Because he trusts this God. He knows God is good and kind and that God has his best interests in view. And so he finds security and comfort in this truth. He wants God's oversight. He wants God to be watching. He wants God to know him. And of course, we should too. It should be a comfort to you to know that God knows you through and through. That's a good thing. God has searched you out. He knows you. He knows your thoughts and your desires. He knows your actions and your words. He knows your paths and your ways. There are no secrets. 
you can keep from God. And that's a good thing because he's a good God. Well, go to the next section. Beginning in verse 7, David turns to consider God's presence with him. Obviously, presence and knowledge connect. So there's a lot of overlap here, but this is not redundant. Verse 7, David says, where can I go from your presence or where can I flee? Where, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Now, at first glance, it might seem like, oh, well, is David now trying to run away from God? Is he trying to flee God? Ever since the fall, man's impulse has been to flee from God. Ever since the fall, man's impulse has been to hide from God. Think of Adam and his wife in Genesis 3 after they have sinned, hiding in the garden. And we know how silly that is. The idea that they could hide from God is absurd. But that's what they tried to do after they sinned. Their sin made them fools, and they thought they could hide themselves behind a tree and hide their shame with fig leaves. And, of course, they were completely wrong about that. They tried to flee God and, of course, failed in that. Or think of Jonah who fled from God because he wanted to escape the mission God had assigned to him. That was also unsuccessful as the hound of heaven tracked him down and redirected him. But I don't think David is doing what Adam and Eve were doing or what Jonah was doing. I don't think David here wants to flee from God. I don't think that's his point. I think rather what David is saying is wherever I go, wherever I could go in the whole cosmos, in the whole of created reality, wherever I might go, God will be there. I can never fall out of God's presence. God will never abandon me. I will never be out of God's reach. And again, to David, that's a comfort. It's interesting, too. I think verse 7 actually hints at the Trinity. We have these traces of the Trinity all throughout the Old Testament. We don't get a full revelation of the Trinity, of course, until Jesus comes and then the Holy Spirit. But verse 7 speaks of God's Spirit. So there's already a kind of duality within God. And then in the next line, the word for presence, actually in Hebrew, is the word faces in the plural. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your faces? The faces of God. One commentator asked the question this way. He says, why do we meet with this word faces so frequently in the plural when applied to God? And why do we have God's spirit and his faces both here in this verse in Psalm 139? He answers his questions. He says, a Trinitarian would say at once, the plurality of persons in the Godhead is intended. God's spirit, we already see that, and then the faces of God, this is pointing us to the Trinity, which means David has the whole Trinity with him at all times. Now again, I don't think he fully understood that the way we can understand it today, but isn't that great to hear, to know that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always with you. You're never really alone. You've got the three persons of the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, with you wherever you go. So David has the presence of God's Spirit. He has the presence of the triune God constantly encircling him. He goes on to show us in verses 8, 9, and 10 what this means by going to extremes. And this is really a poetic way to sum up, again, the totality of the universe to show that God's presence fills the whole cosmos. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend to Sheol, that's the realm of the dead in the Old Covenant, you are there. In other words, David says, if I go up to the heights or down to the depths, God will be with me. He continues, he says, if I take 
wings on the morning. This is talking about the sun rising in the east. So if I go as far to the east as I can go, or he says, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, well, for David, the sea would have been to the west. So if I go as far to the west as I can go, if I go as far east or as far west, David says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David is saying, whichever direction I go, God is there. God is here, there, and everywhere. There's no escaping God's presence. God is in heaven, God is in hell, and everywhere in between. God is as far to the east as you can go, as far as the west as you can go. His presence stretches out to fill the whole creation. And so David knows he lives his whole life, quorum Deo, before the face of God. He lives his whole life in the presence of God, and that's true for us. As well. That's why everything we do matters. We're always in God's presence. God is always with us. Now for David, this was a great source of comfort, and it should be a source of comfort with us as well. Because think about this. If God is with us, who can be against us? If God is with us, it does not matter who turns against you or betrays you or abandons you because God is still with you and he will always be with you. That's the promise here. So what does it matter who else might abandon you or leave you? And David really explains this as he goes on in the psalm. He says, if the darkness falls on me, even the night shall be light about me. He says, indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you, for the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. What is David's point? Nighttime can be scary, not just because of the dark, but because of what can happen in the dark. We can't see in the darkness, and so that makes us vulnerable. But David says here, for God, there is no night. There is no darkness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. God is light, and his light always illumines the darkness. David is saying the light of God is with us even in the darkness. The light of God is with us even in the darkest of nights and the darkest of places. God is an ever-present nightlight. He sees in the night just as if it were the day, and he's with us even in the nighttime, even in the dark. And this is true of literal darkness, which, of course, for us today is not as much of a threat as it would have been for David in a world with no electric lights and lots of enemies out to get him. It's true in the literal darkness, but it's also true if we think of metaphorical darkness, hard times, trials, struggles we go through when we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, when the shadow of death is cast over us, when we go through the darkness, what is David saying? God is with us. He's with us 24-7. Remember how God was present with the Israelites in the wilderness? The cloud by day and the fire by night. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. So God was with them in the light time and the dark time to guide them. That's what David is saying here. God is my pillar of fire in the night to give me light, to, to shine his light upon my path, to guide me, to lead me. God is not going to abandon me. When David says here, even the night shall be light about me, this is really David's poetic, old covenant way of saying the exact same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. The love of God will always be with us and nothing can separate us from God's love. That's what David is saying. Even the night shall be light about me. Even in the dark, God's light, God's love is with me. There is no, tri there's no trial, there's no darkness you can go through that will truly leave you in the dark 
without the light of God's love to guide you and comfort you. God is always with you in this way. See, David didn't write this psalm from an ivory tower, sitting at a distance, safely removed from any danger or hardship. No, you can be certain that David wrote this psalm in the midst of some trial he was going through. How do we know that? Because David was going through some kind of hardship for most of his life. His whole life, he was involved in some kind of struggle. It's just one struggle after another. Even when he became king, still, there's all kinds of hardship in his life. David was well acquainted with the darkness, with hardship, with struggle. But he said, even in the dark, God's light is with me. See, again, David makes all kinds of theological assertions in this psalm. This psalm reveals truth about God. But again, that truth is always intertwined with David's own experience. And here we see it intertwined with the ups and downs of David's life. And that's how it should be. John Frame, someone whose work I greatly admire as a theologian, John Frame has rightly said, all theology is application. That's what theology is by definition. Theology applies the truth about God and his word to every area of human life and experience. Theology left unapplied is not true theology. True theology is theology that shapes the way we live. It's theology interwoven with all of life. And that's what David is doing for us here. He's giving us theology that is application. David can't do theology without immediately intertwining it with its application to his own life. So again, for David, it's not just that God is omnipresent. It's that God is with me. And it's not even just that God is with me, but God is with me at all times and in all places, even if I pass through the darkness, even if I pass through the darkness of Sheol, even if I go through hell on earth, the light of God's wisdom and love will remain with me. That comforted David, it ought to comfort us as well. And then David turns to contemplate God's creative power. David knows God as the one who formed him in his mother's womb. He is the all-creative, all-powerful God. He is the source of all that exists. And David here points to his own creation in his mother's womb to prove this, how God formed him and shaped him in his mother's womb. Now, obviously, this text has been very significant in debates over the personhood of the unborn, which is a big deal in our culture. Uh, Obviously, since David says, you formed me in my mother's womb, he considered himself a person even when he was still in the womb. He was not just a clump of cells. He was an image bearer with a body and soul of his own, even in his mother's womb. So, of course, he ought to have all the rights and privileges and protections that come with being a human person, even in the womb. You'll sometimes hear pro-abortion women say, my body, my choice. Okay, that kind of autonomy is misguided. You can't do whatever you choose with your own body. But even if you grant the premise, my body, my choice, the child in the womb is not her body. The child in the womb has a body of his own. That's David's point. David says the Lord was forming me and knitting my body together in the womb of my mother. Yes, the child lives within his mother, but the child has his own distinct 
personhood before God. David affirms that here. David's not dealing, obviously, with abortion. But what he says is very relevant to that debate. But it's actually more than just that. David is not just talking about children in the womb in general. He's talking about what it means to be a covenant child in the womb. In the Bible and in the Westminster Confession of Faith, the church is always defined as those who profess the faith and their children. That's how the church is always defined. That's why God's promises always include the next generation. I'll be a God to you and to your children. Those who profess the faith and their children belong to the people of God. That's what David says here. uh, and, and, And this psalm obviously reinforces that truth. David was a covenant child in the womb. He was the son of a godly man named Jesse. And so David here affirms that the Lord was with him in the womb in a special way. In verse 14, he praises God because he says, I have been marvelously distinguished. Our English translations don't really capture this, but it's interesting. Every other time that particular word in the Hebrew is used in the Old Testament, it describes God distinguishing his people from the rest of the world. So in the book of Exodus, when God judges Egypt and he spares his own people, plagues that landed on Egypt, but not on the Israelites, Moses said, God marvelously distinguished his people. A judgment fell on the Israelites, but not on God's people. They were marvelously distinguished. That's the same word. God put a difference between his people and the rest. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses says that God has marvelously separated, or again, marvelously distinguished his people from the other nations. They are his own special possession. They're set apart from the rest of the world. That's what David is saying here. Even in the womb, he has been marvelously set apart. He belongs to God, not just as his creator, but as his covenant Lord and as his redeemer. Paul gets at this same truth in 1 Corinthians 7, When he tells believers, your children are holy, that is, your children have been marvelously distinguished. They've been set apart. They belong to God. Or Jesus is doing the same thing in Matthew chapter 19 when covenant children are brought to him and he blesses them and he says, of such is the kingdom of God. They don't belong to the world. They've been marvelously distinguished. They belong to the kingdom. The children of God's people are set apart and distinguished even in the womb. And of course, that's got all kinds of implications for how we understand miscarriages and and all kinds of other things we can get into that I won't hear. In verse 15, David says, God made him in secret. He compares the womb of his mother to Mother Earth. God forming David in his mother's womb is analogous to God forming Adam out of the dust of the earth. It's as if David sees himself as a new creation, and he uses the language and imagery of Genesis. So Genesis 2, God forming Adam out of the earth, that same kind of language is used here. Genesis 1, the original creation being unformed and then God forming it over the course of six days. David says initially in the womb he was unformed and God formed him. David is like a new Adam being formed out of the dust of the earth. Indeed, maybe this is even prophetic of God bringing forth the new Adam, you could say the the new David, Jesus, from the tomb of the earth. In his resurrection, that tomb was also a kind of womb, and Jesus came forth as the firstborn of a new creation in his resurrection. It gets even more interesting. David says he was woven together in his mother's womb. It's the same word 
uh, used, that, that word for weaving or for knitting or for embroidering, the same word is used to describe the weaving together uh, the veils and curtains that hung in the tabernacle and the temple. It's as if David is saying, God wove me together and God formed me. And as God wove together and formed David's infant body in his mother's womb, David's saying it's as if God was creating a new temple in which he will dwell. David's body will be a temple for God to inhabit. And that's why David can celebrate his formation in the womb. Kids, do you hear this? Do you hear this? How God made you? And how God made you just the way he wants you. Kids, think about this. Your height, your eye color, how smart you are, how athletic you are. That's all God's doing. And God has formed you just the way he wants you. He formed you in your mother's tummy with skill and wisdom. And he's been with you ever since. And he loves you and you belong to him. It's amazing to know that. You know, David's not writing just for the sake of building up our self-esteem. But in describing himself as God's handiwork, he cannot help but show the amazing value and worth that humans have. We are God's masterpiece. The human race is God's magnum opus. And God has a special love for the children of his people. And that special love begins even when they are just one cell big, two cells big in the womb. That's where it begins, God's love for his own. When David reflected on the wisdom of the human body, the skill and wisdom and craftsmanship of God's handiwork, when he considered God's covenant love for him even from the womb, separating him from the world to make him his own special possession, God is driven to praise his omnipotent creator. When David says he is fearfully and wonderfully made, he's indicating that the God who made him is wonderful and is to be feared, and that fear and that wonder are reflected in who we are as his creatures. There's something fearful about your own body, something wonderful about it you need to appreciate, something fearful and wonderful about all the other bodies in this room sitting here with you. That person next to you, sitting next to you right now today, is a fearful and wonderful creature of God. And we need to recognize that, not just about ourselves, but about one another. David then goes on to describe God's providence, that is to say God's sovereign rule over his life, in verse 16, God's care for David begins in the womb, but it continues for the rest of his days. And so he says, in your book, the days fashioned for me were written before one of them came to be. What is David saying? David is saying, God is the author of my story. God's the author of the story of the world, and that means God is the author of my story as well. All of my days were written in his book ahead of time. And again, there's really nothing more comforting than this, to know that God is omnipotent, to know that God is sovereign, to know that God's wisdom and power not only formed me in the womb, God not only shaped me there into the person he wanted me to be, but God also shapes the whole story of my life. So all the events and circumstances that I go through each day were crafted by God just for me. Now I can tell you this, David here says God is the author of his story. God is a good storyteller. God's a good storyteller. He's the best storyteller of them all. But I tell you this too, every good story has dark chapters. Find me a good story without a dark chapter in it. 
You can't. You won't be able to. And that's why we need to know that God's light is with us even in those dark periods of life. You know, even as we go through the dark chapters God has written for us. I mean, the truth is God, God loves a good cliffhanger. God loves stories with last-second escapes. God loves underdog stories where the weak upset the mighty. He loves stories where painful sacrifices lead to glorious reward. God loves those kinds of stories. But you can't get those kinds of stories without some dark chapters along the way. David is saying God is sovereign. He has scripted your life. He has predestined every aspect of your life. He's pre-written your story down to every last detail. Every second of every day of your life is in his hands. He's authored all of it. You're living in his story. And that should be a great comfort to you. Because I'll tell you this, whatever else might be true of the story God has authored for you, you can be sure that story ends with, and he lived happily ever after for all eternity. That's how your story is going to end. David tells us how the story begins for each of us in our mother's womb in verses 13 to 15. And we can be sure how the story ends. I think he hints at that in verse 18. I mean, the whole Bible tells us this, how the story is going to end with a glorious resurrection as we enter into God's new creation and commune with him for all eternity. But I think that's what David's getting at is the end of the story in verse 18. He says, when I awake, I am still with you. That awakening, I think, is after death. I think it's the awakening of the resurrection at the last day. He's saying, even then, I'm still with you. I'm still in your story. You're going to be my God even beyond the grave, beyond death, into the world to come. I don't know what the middle chapters of your story will include. But I'll tell you this. If you know how the story begins and how the story ends, if you know where you came from and where you are going, the first chapter and the last chapter, you can endure joyfully. You can handle with poise whatever those middle chapters might throw at you. You know where this story came from. You know where it's going. I think one reason people today are so overwhelmed with anxiety, especially our young people, is they don't think, they haven't been taught that there is a divine author behind everything. And so they think they've got to author their own story. They have to create an identity for themselves. They've got to create a plot line and a meaning for their existence. But I can tell you, we were not made to handle those kinds of burdens. You're not fit to play God. And if you think you've got to write your own story and create your own identity, that's what you've set out to do, to be your own God. The reality is you can't write a better story for yourself than God. You can't handle a universe that is totally fluid, where there are no divine givens. That puts an insane amount of pressure and stress on anybody to say, go write your own story, go create your own identity. There are no givens, everything's fluid, nothing has meaning. Go write your own story from scratch. Go create your own identity from nothing. Nobody can handle that. It's no wonder we have so many people who are stressed out and and full of anxiety all the time because we weren't made for that. But I'll tell you this too, recognizing that God is the author of your story will not make you passive. If you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, you might remember how Sam and Frodo have this sense that they are in a much larger story. But having the sense that they're in a much larger story does not negate their responsibility. It doesn't make them passive. Rather, knowing they're in this much larger story is what gives their actions meaning. So it was with David, and so it is with us as well. 
And that's why David closes out this section in verses 17 and 18 with an expression of amazement before God. In verse 17, David is amazed that this God has thoughts of him, that this God is thinking of him all the time in these ways. David says that God's plans and intentions for him are precious because he knows that God's plans and intentions are good. They're full of grace and mercy and glory. David can't count those thoughts. It's too vast for him to take in. He cannot fathom it all. He's acknowledging here that God is incomprehensible to him. He knows God, but he knows he can never fully know God. Because God is infinite, God is inexhaustible, God's ways are past finding out, his wisdom is unsearchable. But David says, this God, this all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God, this God who is infinitely beyond us, is also incredibly intimate with us. This is the God who knows us and who makes himself known to us. This is a God, David shows us, this is a God who is worthy A God who is worthy of worship and praise. A God who is worthy of trust and obedience. A God who is worthy of love and adoration. So give it to him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.